Hello, and welcome to another Meta Media Group production of On Purpose Magazine, featuring interesting, inspiring, educational, and entertaining stories, discussions, and interviews of purpose, with purpose, on purpose. Hello, everybody. This is J.W. Najarian with On Purpose Magazine, and today we're here with Devin Blaine. How you doing, Devin? I'm doing terrific, J.W. Good to talk to you. Well, thank you very much, and you are terrific, if I may say so myself. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, Devin Blaine uh, is a uh, you're, you're you work in public relations with, the, and you are the owner of the Blaine Group, correct? That is correct. Uh, you owner guys, and founder, guilty as charged. And, <laughs> and you were established in what February of 1975. Uh, I hate uh, to admit it's been that long, but it has been JW. Well, you did open it when you were six, I do recall. <laughs> I'm glad you remember too. Yeah, um, that was so. You opened up in 1975, and you, your offices are in Beverly Hills. Um, I know you started out first of all as an actress and a model, um, best known for I think your role in uh, Beverly Hillbillies is Janet Butterfield. Is that correct? Um, I was girl number one. Girl number one. Yes, <laughs> I was one of the bank tellers. Oh, okay. But you're you're leaving out the exciting part, I, which probably wasn't in my bio. I was also a stunt car driver. Oh, that's right. That you were a stunt car driver and a go-go dancer and. <laughs> okay, we can stop there. <laughs> no, actually, uh, tell me about the stunt driving thing because that is pretty. That is a pretty wild story. Uh, during my acting and modeling career. One of my agents sent me on a call to uh, do high-speed, dangerous driving maneuvers for a production company that was shooting Chrysler Plymouth Dodge sales training films. And Mm -hmm. I had just driven back from a month-long gig in Casa Grande, Arizona for Union 76, where I was... uh, serving free coffee to truckers every night at the Toltec truck stop. And I was one of ten ten women throughout the country doing doing those kinds of promotions for Union Oil. This was in the uh, go-go days when gas prices were low and uh, the U.S. automotive and gasoline industries were making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And, and spending a lot on promotion. So I drove back from Casa Grande, went on the interview the next day, and the producer said, are you a good driver? And I said, oh, I'm great. I just drove back from Arizona last night. So that started the process of the working for, I think it was three years for the production company that did all of these films, and we were directed by Walkie Talkie. Mm-hmm. Uh, the women who were hired as drivers were without seat belts, uh, close to camera, and the real stunt drivers were in cars on the other side of us where they weren't seen. And I did things like... Uh, drive across the Mojave Desert, uh, across the sand dune, 
and come almost to touch another car and then speed off in the distance in a prototype car whose brakes were going out. <laughs> uh, and the shoot were my last shoot for them. I kind of lost my nerve after that. Maybe I was getting older and more sensible after three years. I was driving down a one-way winding mountain road in Santa Maria. And the camera car with the cameraman, the producer, uh, the camera on a dolly were doing close-ups and pullbacks six inches from my hubcap. I was driving a Dodge station wagon, again, a prototype car. And, you know, the commercial shoots would get the car first. The still shots, then the commercial shoots. Then we would get it when it was beat up and had problems. So we finished going down this two-lane winding mountain road, uh, two cars going down. And when we finished the shot, we learned that the first production assistant had neglected to close off the road. That's right. And I didn't wear a seatbelt when I was a stunt driver, so these days I rarely wear one either. If I didn't need it then, why would I need it now? Exactly. Not in Beverly Hills, anyway. You don't drive over (laughs) 25 miles an hour. And on the 405, you usually don't either. Exactly. So (laughs) let's get, let's, um, you know, your acting career. First of all, I don't know where you were where you were brought up. Where, where were you? Where were you born? And where I'm were you a native up? of Los Angeles, J.W. Wonderful. So, what made you want to get into acting? Since you didn't come from the farm hills of Idaho, I just grew up wanting to do that, and I remember being nine years old, sitting at the dining room table with my parents. I was an only child, and saying. I think I'd like to be an actress or a model one day when I grow up. And my father looked at me and said, you could never do that. It's too competitive. Oh, so... <laughs> so, of course, I did that. Of course, you... As soon as somebody tells you you can't do anything... Well, one of the one of the things that we're going to talk about today, that is, and that is um, not only what it takes to build, a, you know, the woman... I don't buy that. Okay. Oh, I I I hear a lot of women moan about that, mm-hmm. whine about that, uh, usually in a high-pitched, squeaky voice. <laughs> and even when I was starting out, JW, my attitude was, yeah, Joe Jones may hire Sam Smith rather than me. But it's not because he's a man and I'm a woman. It's because they've known each other for 20 years. Right. And after I've been in business that long, so the key is longevity, after I've been around that long, I too will have that network of relationships, and I'll get business because I know people. And that's absolutely how it works. Oh, that helps to also be good at what you do. Right. Well, but you're in you're in Beverly Hills. You're in Hollywood area, that kind of thing. In Southern California, there's there's 
thousands probably of PR firms out here. Um, oh, or many of them I call single shingles. <laughs> but who, it's one of those like if you throw a stone, you're going to hit a PR person. <laughs> and you guys you know, are or someone who says they are, and many of them work from home, and they right. charge a whole lot less money than we need to charge because we have offices and we have staff. We have good senior-level professionals who know what they're doing, who get the job done. And that's another reason we're speaking to you today, because you're the Blaine Group. Um, first of all, let, let's talk about that a little bit. The Blaine Group, I mean, first of all, you started out, you, uh, you've written newspaper and magazine columns, when, uh, scripted radio, television commercials, served as production supervisors, strategized political issues and campaigns, developed and implemented investor relation plans and created communication campaigns for a diverse range of clients. You do a lot more than that, and one of the things we're going to talk about is also the fact that you guys specialize in crisis management uh, at the Blaine Group. Um, but let's, let's just start out uh, from, the, from the first part. You have a company in Beverly Hills. You're probably, I think you're rated the 24th largest PR company in, um, in the Southern California area. You did your homework. Um, oh, thank you. And you, and I, I mentioned this, be, even though you don't believe in it, the 96th, uh, uh, what is it, the 96th largest women's uh, Women-owned company, yes. Women-only company? And so Women-owned. Women-owned, not women-only. I, I, I totally believe in women-owning companies. I just don't believe that women are disadvantaged. That's a that's a cool point. I I I, I like that. Uh, I don't know. You know, it's going to be tough. Uh, you know, for a lot of people believing that. But what's cool is that did anyone ever get that. anywhere being a victim? Right. Well, that, and that's why I'm saying you've kind of proved that in the fact that you're the 24th largest. Even though you, uh, I would call you a boutique, we're definitely a boutique, which is kind of cool because it allows you not only to work with the it allows you to work with the big guys. And the small guys, but give a lot of hands-on. Is that correct? Uh, absolutely, we give a lot of hands-on. That's one of the reasons many of our clients retain us. Uh, they never get rid of me, so hopefully they they like me. If they don't like me, we don't get hired. Right. Uh, typically, don't get clients whose annual sales are a hundred million or more a year. Mm-hmm. And that's because those companies have marketing directors that make safe decisions because no one ever got fired for hiring a major national PR firm. Right. So they, they don't take chances on boutiques like us. So, and that's one reason why we do very well with fast-track emerging growth companies, entrepreneurial companies, and authors, all people who are extraordinarily passionate about that which they do. And I, I really enjoy working with people who love what they do, who really care about it. It means everything to them as opposed to bureaucratic red tape, which is what you get in uh, the Fortune 100 or 1000. And we've worked with a few of those too. <laughs> Well, I just to uh, let people know, uh, we've worked together on several events, or several campaigns that you put together. Thank, uh, and you thank very you. graciously interviewed a number of our clients. 
It's always a pleasure. You have you have a you have a very diverse set of clients, and you also do, and that's one of the things we wanted to talk about today and mention because it's I uh, I think it's fabulous, and I congratulate you. You're winning an award about uh, for authors. Is that correct? Uh, I am. The book publicists of Southern California is giving me an award as book publicist of the year, and I'm very grateful for that. Book Publicist of the Year, and that's mm-hmm. pretty cool. We have a great client to blame for that. Oh, we, yeah. We've been working this year with the authors of Abbey Road to Ziggy Stardust. Ken uh, Scott. Ken, Ken Scott, whom you know, uh, wrote the book with Bobby Osinski. Mm-hmm. The press just loves Ken, loves his story, but who wouldn't love to talk to a man who was the sound engineer or producer with the Beatles, with David Bowie, with a number of other classic rock acts and great jazz groups. He has so many wonderful stories to tell. It's not surprising that in the last nine months we've had probably over 150 international media interviews, uh, speaking engagements, book signings, etc. for him. Yeah, well, let's not make this sound easy because um, even though Ken Scott is, is a, a huge part of history in the music field and a lot of people do want to speak to him, but somebody has to coordinate over 150 exposures, interviews, book reviews, signings, speaking engagements, uh, coverage like uh, Wall Street Journal and uh, ABC and NBC, the Grammy Museum thing that you put together. This is this is not uh, easy stuff. I mean, it, there's a lot of coordination. There's a lot of phone calls. There's a lot of there's. A, you, I mean, you utilize your whole staff to get this done, correct? Absolutely. I could not do it without a great staff. And this has been a successful campaign for them. So, uh, I mean, and that's one of many. I mean, you worked on Kevin Trudeau's book, right? The nutrition book, correct? We worked on uh, Natural Cures They Don't Want You to Know About, which was a runaway bestseller. Sold over 5 million copies. What was the other one? You had another bestseller. Uh, We've actually worked on four to date. Uh, The first one was Nice Girls Do and You Can Too. Uh, mm-hmm. That was Dr. Irene Casorla's first book. I usually call it the orgasm book. <laughs> and J. Patrick Wright had a book out uh, that same year called On a Clear Day You Can See General Motors. It was oh, the yeah. uh, first DeLorean expose. Mm-hmm. And we also worked on Steve Alton's novel, Meg, which was uh, a a great white story, uh, Hot Summer Read, and was uh, published by Doubleday and optioned for a movie by Disney in the same week. Nice. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit, because I have a lot of authors that listen to me, Devin, as you know, and I'm sure that they'd be, uh, they'd love, they would love to get the opportunity to, to speak to you. Nowadays, it's, there's a lot of competition for, for authors out there, uh, and there's different ways to publish, self-publish, and publish on demand, and get picked up by a house for distribution, you know, and authors are told so many different things about um, what they need to do. Uh, there is a case, I believe, for somebody taking their PR into their own hands if they don't have the money to do it a lot of times, but it's actually really kind of rare. 
because when you take it into your own hands, you have to really have a lot of knowledge about whether it be, and this is something else we can talk about, and that be social media and the regular PR kind of course. And that's why I believe, and I think you would, (laughs) being a PR company, you would agree, that authors need not only the social media side of things, if they even know how to do that, but also traditional forms, which a good PR firm can really make, can make it much easier for them and give them a lot more power. Is that correct? The two really work hand in hand. And that's true of entrepreneurial companies as well as authors. Mm-hmm. Uh, the social media does bring a lot of eyeballs. It can aid sales, but the the credibility uh, if a company's looking for investors or if and I was just approached earlier this week by an author who wants his book to be optioned for a motion picture. You need the credibility of mainstream press right. besides the social media buzz. Yes, no, that makes sense. Do you have reasonable prices that uh, most authors can deal with, or uh, would you say that uh, it's a very expensive thing to do to hire a PR company nowadays? It's not inexpensive, but we're... We're probably middle of the road price-wise. We're going to charge more than a sole practitioner because we do maintain offices. And while we have a Beverly Hills address, we're east of Beverly Hills, so it's the low-rent district of Beverly Hills. (laughs) And we don't charge uh, a huge minimum like the major national firms do. Right. Through the years, and I don't think you're cognizant of this, uh, there have been clients for whom we've developed what we call a master plan, which essentially is a do-it-yourself program where we prepare the press materials, professionally done. Mm -hmm. We prepare a media list, and we give them a set of do-it-yourself implementation instructions. So it's a way that a an author or a startup company can implement their own program more cost-effectively but still professionally. Hopefully, they'll be wildly successful with that and come back to us for more. Exactly. So that kind of gives them a good in and a good feel for what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, gives them all the tools that they need to start out, right? It does, or it scares them off to so that they realize how much hard work is involved and how time-consuming it is, then they may just decide to hire us. Well, that is kind of the key right there. People, um, you know, I've said this a zillion times, and we've heard it a zillion times, and that is everybody thinks it's really hard to write the book, and then they think it's really hard to get it published. But once that's done, they realize that they just really kind of started the journey with marketing and promotion. Is that right? That is absolutely right. The distribution, the marketing, the sales, the PR, it's all a lot of work. Yeah, and let's face it, the numbers are not good for uh, first-time or even second-time authors sometimes. or uh, Authors in general, 50% of them make an average of about $250 off their books. If they're not publishing on demand, there's a possibility that they have anywhere from 2,500 to 4,500 books in their garage that will mm-hmm. never move. That's right. Uh, after they've sold to their family and friends. 
it's uh, tough out we, there. We worked with a doctor who had uh, probably four books with about that quantity of each in his garage. <laughs> this is not a you know one-off story. This happens actually quite a lot. It is actually the, the uh, more of the case than the exception. Do you work with a lot of authors? I love working with authors. Uh, we always have at least two books that we're working on, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes more. And I love the diversity, and I love the passion. We worked on a few books together, or, or you know, campaigns where I did uh, interviews for some of your authors. And uh, you, you bring some of the greatest authors to the table. They're some of my funnest interviews. I really appreciate them. Oh, that, I really appreciate hearing that. Oh, no problem. Let's go away from the author for a little bit and talk about other businesses you work for um, because I want to make sure that everybody knows the Blaine Group does not just work with authors, even though you're getting this great uh, accolade and award for being oh, a publisher thank you. for authors. Um, what other kind of businesses do you work with? All different kinds, JW. Um, when I say fast-track emerging growth companies, uh, we've done a lot in the healthcare space. Mm-hmm. You cannot be in Southern California and not do some IT. Uh, same <laughs> with health, fashion, beauty, fitness. Uh, and we've worked with heavy-duty industrial companies just getting trade press coverage for them. Uh, we also work with a venture debt fund, uh, a merchant banking fund, and a law fund. So we're, we're also heavy in financial services. I uh, have worked with several commercial banks. Yeah, we just, uh, you just recently did one for, with Gilmore Bank for, um, Westview School. The, um, yes, they, they were the primary sponsor of, uh, a golf tournament for a school for, uh, children who have special learning needs. Mm-hmm. And they've been supportive of that school and its fundraising events for a number of years and brought us in to add a little additional power behind that. And it was a, a big success. They raised about $25,000 for the school in that one day at the golf tournament. Yeah, that was, that was wonderful. That's great. So you, you're probably the best person to answer this. You have to learn every industry you get into, or do you have, you know, is PR PR, and it works the way it works for from the author to the industrial guy? Well, PR is PR. I mean, the outreach to the press is much the same. You know, the pitching is the same. The people are different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of what I love about what I do and why I like the diversity is that I do get to learn a lot in depth about a lot of different industries. And it it's great for cocktail party patter. <laughs> and there are times I'll be at a client's conference. I know a number of years ago we worked with a company that manufactured products used in ophthalmological surgery, cataract mm-hmm. removal in particular. And I was at their international conference and talking with some of the doctors. And after my spiel about their new product, the doctors started asking technical questions, which I was ill-prepared to answer. 
but they thought I knew more than I did because I had that one paragraph down so well. Right. So that's a large part of what we do. We're working with an oncologist right now who has um, a different way of treating cancer and was just published in anti-cancer research. Yes, Dr. Nagorny. Uh, yes, because of phase two clinical trials conducted on advanced lung cancer patients that showed just remarkable results, way outside the norm, uh, because of assay-based therapy. Yeah, you know, and one of the things we talked about um, uh, before this call was uh, some of the things that you work on, like Dr. Nagorny's, are maybe kind of different out of the box. You think that if there was a medical um, discovery that it would go into a, the Lancet or the New England Journal of uh, Medicine and then it would take a stronghold and move on. But the truth is that doesn't necessarily always happen with every discovery. And so in your case, you're having to, you're having to hit it from a different kind of PR side in order to let the world know about this particular discovery. Am, am I off, way off base? or kind you're, of you're not way off base at all. Any advance in medical treatment or in pharma or biotech is met with a great deal of conservatism. Mm -hmm. People are very slow to accept. I mean, there's an old saying about those who lead end up with arrows in their back. And that's exactly how it is, whether it be in the medical community or in academia. Mm -hmm. It's a challenging place to be and can be very frustrating. Absolutely, especially if you have something that uh, is exciting and nobody's picking it up. It's kind of... Uh, you... uh, exciting or life-saving. Or life-saving, more yeah. importantly. Mm -hmm. And uh, we we experienced some of that with the silicone intraocular lens that we worked with a number of years ago, uh, because that was very cutting edge. Right. Let's talk about. I want to talk about your what you do with crisis, but I want to. Um, well, I think we didn't segue into how as a how a woman who is an actress, model, stunt car driver. Uh, always wanted to be an actress. Starts building um, a, bo you know, a boutique uh, PR <laughs> company in Beverly Hills. I mean, what was the catalyst or motivation, or what made you do that? It was an accident, and I didn't know any better. I one day had a meeting with the then managers for my mediocre acting career, mm -hmm. and in that meeting, they said, "You know, we have this." guy that we think is going to be the next major motion picture star. He's going to do a motorcycle movie. He's going to be the next Steve McQueen. And we'd like you to handle his PR. And that sounds a little bit off the wall until I share a little bit more of my background. Um, I grew up working, while I was in high school, working for the local community newspaper writing a, essentially a gossip column. Mm -hmm. I was paid by the inch for what I submitted, so I wrote a lot. <laughs> uh, and I worked on my school newspaper for seven semesters. It was a six-year high school, junior and high school all together. 
And the last semester in school, I edited the paper. Mm-hmm. And when I was at UCLA, I worked on the Daily Bruin. Oh. So I I did have a significant journalism background. And I've always been intensely curious and working every trade show known to mankind uh certainly put a lot of arsenal in my my briefcase. I, I knew a little bit about a lot of things, generally right. enough to get into trouble, but also <laughs> enough to have a, a reasonable conversation uh, with whatever prospect I might be meeting with. And Did they allow you, let me just, uh, just not to change subject, but mm-hmm. when you were doing, uh, when you were a spokesmodel for something at a car show or whatever you're mm-hmm. doing, um, I was, I, I just did an interview uh, recently with uh, another company that offers spokesmodels. And it used to be that they just wanted pretty girls. Mm-hmm. Nowadays it seems that they want pretty girls, but they want pretty girls who can talk and think and on their feet. Was it like that then, or did they just want you to be quiet and, and look pretty? Um, it was always an advantage to be able to talk or to know how to move people to the right salesperson. Mm-hmm. or to keep someone engaged about the product until that right salesperson was available to talk to them, or to be smart enough to uh, learn the script and be able to deviate it when deviate from it when there were questions. And in some cases, uh, after a day there, when equipment broke down, I'd be fixing it. I don't know how, but <laughs> I guess it was because it was necessary. So brains uh, do count. <laughs> oh, yes, it was the de rigueur wardrobe of miniskirt, hot pants, four-inch spike heels or boots. Uh, and when you're working an average of a trade show a week, you learn a lot about a lot of industries. Mm-hmm. And for me, there was nothing in the world more boring than to stand on the showroom floor or the trade show floor and smile and say, how about a bag today, sir? <laughs> so I would walk around the conference and learn what was new, see what else was there. Uh, whoever had hired me, be it the president or the uh, VP of Corporate Communications or the CFO, I made sure I had a chance to have coffee or lunch or uh, a break with them and and have a chance to learn about their job. Mm-hmm. And there was always a crisis at every trade show. I mean, nothing ever goes smoothly when you're right. moving into a space, setting up for a short period of time and then out again. Uh so I'd learn about how they handled that problem. Mm-hmm. And showing that level of interest made sure I got hired when they needed someone again. It prevented me from being terminally bored. And it also filled that satchel that I carry with me today. Yeah, and that's that's a good segue into crisis um, intervention. Because uh, a lot of firms don't do crisis intervention, and you guys like to specialize in it. That's something that you like to do. Crisis assignments really get the adrenaline rolling because you never know what's coming at you next. 
And, and let me ask you, from speaking to you in the past, um, what's really different about the crisis is that, uh, and I'm sure this is not the same in all instances, but when you're trying to promote a company, you're out there getting them press, whereas when you're in crisis management, you're doing mainly the opposite. Is that not true? Or You're attempting to minimize the coverage. Mm-hmm. And if it's a big enough situation, you, you're you not going to prevent the press from covering it. But the goal then is to manage how they cover it. Right. And a lot of that is done by what you provide for them and how much access you provide to spokespeople and how the spokespeople handle that. Spokesperson training is critical. And most companies don't believe they'll ever have a crisis, so they don't prepare for it. And because of the highest profile crisis we ever handled, which was for a very small company, they only had uh, $8 in annual sales Mm -hmm. and three employees, and they would never have anticipated having a crisis, and they had one that was international 24-7 for about two weeks. Right. So I've become a proponent of crisis planning. No matter how small the company, no matter how large the company, the attitude is, oh, that's not going to happen to us. And there are certain factors where if a company is in certain industries, mm-hmm. food industry, Anything that deals with asbestos, pharma, I hate to say it, but any company that imports from China, right? those are all companies that need to have a crisis plan so that when the unthinkable happens, they at least have a game plan. It's, a, it's about having a plan B? It's about knowing who will deal with the press okay. and having them have some basics. So they know what to say. Right. Or do you rely on your very well-meaning receptionist to take a call from the press and maybe not know who to give it to and maybe try and answer the questions herself Mm -hmm. when she doesn't have the company line down at all? Right. Let let me ask you, because it brings brings us up and... and, uh we typically would think, because if we're a company, we would think that companies that are in crisis are probably companies that have a don't have a really good value system and are probably fast and loose with the ethics or morals, and so they and they get caught um, doing something stupid. But and I'm sure that happens uh, here and there. But you were stating that hey, most companies don't realize that they're going to get hit. So I'm guessing the truth is that even a, a company with high values who does not play fast and loose with morals and business can still get hit with a crisis. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. Certainly companies that don't have good values or a good culture are ripe for something to go wrong. Sure. But there are very well-intentioned companies that did nothing wrong that have a problem like like the highest profile situation we were involved with, that that small 
three-employee, $8 million in annual revenue company I mentioned, mm-hmm. imported products from China. They were shipped into their warehouse. They shipped them out to their Fortune 100 customers. They happened to be the source of all the wheat gluten that was used in every we call pet food product about five and a half mm-hmm. years ago. They never even opened the bags. Oh. And they took it in. They shipped it out. So it wasn't like they were trying to do, pull anything over somebody's eyes. They were just doing what they do. They were distributing. Absolutely not. Unfortunately, their vendor probably was guilty because I learned during the crisis that the vendor's factory was housed on a melamine refuse dumping site. And it was the melamine in the wheat gluten that gave it a false high protein rating and was what was causing the illness or death of the pets. So melamine, that substance used in a lot of uh, plasticware, was the culprit. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Any business would hate to find out something like that, especially... Uh, if your product is killing pets or, or hurting anybody, I mean, that's that's bad in itself. Uh, take me through a typical, I call you and say, listen, I have a crisis. What's my first step? What do I do? Well, the, typically the phone call begins something like this. I think we might need crisis PR. And I usually hear that between 12 and 4 on Friday. And it always seems as though people wait until the last minute to acknowledge that there might really be a problem. So the first step is to learn what the situation is. Is it already in the press? How can it be contained? Is there going to be a product recall involved? Uh, If the FDA gets involved in that, there are very special requirements including they get to approve the press release and it has to be released through a certain office of Associated Press and posted on the FDA's website. And then how do the phones get handled? How does the press get handled? Is there a company spokesperson that's capable of dealing with this or does that need to be assigned to perhaps the council? that is the attorney that's brought in to help with this situation. Right. And that's where I see a problem with people not planning ahead for a crisis. When you're already in one is not the time to be finding an FDA attorney. Well, you know, recently I brought you a company that had had a small crisis. Yes, you did. The scenario was exactly this, and that Mm -hmm. was they waited till the very last minute to even Mm -hmm. start finding out because... You, what you try to do is you, you, you kind of stick in denial thinking that the thing's going to blow over and it's all going to turn out okay and, uh, you know, maybe you're wrong. And then it, usually it's when it gets to the point where your back is against the wall where you reach out for help, which is a great reason to have a plan. Yes, it is. Because if that attorney knows your business, if the crisis PR firm knows your business, it's so much easier to react. There's not all the getting up to speed. And it's much better to pay for it at non-crisis prices. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's the the old way of selling what they call top of mind awareness. Everybody thinks the bell curve of sales is we have plenty of time to look at all the different vendors and come up with the best price <laughs> and then purchase the equipment. And then, the, so let's say it's computer equipment. Uh, what really happens in the real world is everybody waits while everything's falling apart around them and the day the computer finally totally dies, uh, they have to go to the first company that they have a card on or is in the top of the phone book, and they have to pay outrageous prices because they can't wait to go, you know, price shop. They got to have it That's right. today, and they can't wait for it to be shipped either. Right. <laughs> so we're going to have to pay you to drive it out here from Vegas, and then they're on double time on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the way it works. That's the you know that's the way the world is, and that's why we that's why we don't like Murphy very much. And if you. Don't plan ahead for a crisis. I'm happy to be paid more later. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Devin, I know you have to get to work today. It's, uh, this is a work day for you. It uh, is. So I want to I wrap this up. But Can you leave me with uh, and the listeners with a final thought on if they're thinking about PR or they believe that PR is just you know, paying somebody to do stuff they can do on their own, could you leave them with maybe a little tip or some information about what it really does mean to hire a PR company and why they probably should? Well, there are a number of things that a talented group of people can do that it is more challenging for a company to do on their own. There's a speech I've given for years on how to do your own PR which I've jokingly subtitled How to Put the Blaine Group Out of Business. <laughs> and it gives all of the tips and all of the things that can be done when you do your own PR. And there are some young companies who may have the assistant to the president uh, spend part of their time implementing a minor PR program that helps the company to launch. Mm-hmm. but they can only get it so far. That's probably not someone who's going to be able to access the Associated Press Bureau Chief or get the company on to network news. But they can get some other very good, solid coverage and perhaps even implement a, a social media program. Right. And get it kick-started and then bring an agency in to take it up to a more professional, more extensive, broader-based effort. Uh, but there are a lot of things that should be considered when evaluating an agency. And I'm glad I, you said that. I know, I know I'm giving you the last word, but I was actually getting ready to ask this question. <laughs> anyway, uh, and that is... You had mentioned earlier there's a lot of people that work out of their house. They call themselves PR people. And um, how do you analyze a company and whether they can actually do something for you or just uh, throwing money in the wind? I think the best way to answer that is to share some of the questions that I hear from people who come to me when they have grown disenchanted with another agency that they mistakenly hired before us. Mm -hmm. And those might be questions like, 
shouldn't they be reaching out to the press with queries based on thus and so that happened in day-to-day hard news on our behalf? You bet they should. Whenever you can tie a client into something that's in the news, you can get extra coverage for your client. Right. So you really have to be a news and trend watcher to be in the agency business. You need to know what's going on in the world. And every every waking moment that I'm at home and some that I'm not awake, there's some kind of news on. Right. Even if I'm doing something else, that's in the background, so I'm I'm getting the input. And a team of professionals is always going to be better than a single professional because they all come to that table with different ways of thinking, different ideas, different solutions, different contacts. I did that just the other day in, in preparing a proposal for a prospect. I chatted with several team members, and each of them came to the table with different ideas than one another and augmented my thinking. So you really are stronger, and your campaign will be stronger and bring you better results if it's not just a single person working on it. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I've had PR people, a lot of PR people I work with, different ones. We've talked you have that. mentioned many of them. Yes, and uh, one of the things that is always funny to me is when they call me and say, "JW, I just uh, made you a bunch of money," and I'm like, "Oh, great! I love I love a bunch of money." <laughs> and I so, so tell me what I made and what do I need to do for it? And they say, "Well, we got a new uh, we have a new client and they want a bunch of social media stuff done." I go, "Well, that's great. I'm good at social media." And then they say, "And uh, here's the budget." And I go, well, I can't do that for that budget. Well, that's Mm -hmm. the budget I gave them. Well, you should have Mm -hmm. called me first and asked me how much I would charge to do that. Well, now you've got to do it because I promised that you're going to do this for them. No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) So now they're very upset with me because I'm not uh, playing ball with them for the, you know, for the amount of money. You know, it's just ridiculous. And there are so many people that call themselves PR people that don't don't seem to have a clue what PR really is about. One of the reasons I love working with you, you're one of my favorite PR agencies, not oh, only because you, you get it, but because you you guys are not, you know, you, you've never been aggressive or, you know, or you're always smart about what you're doing. I've never been to one of your, whether any of your productions or anything that you've put together and found that anything wasn't totally organized. And that's rare. Well, um, that's very kind of you to say, but that's how it should be done. Well, yeah, it's not even about being kind. It's just, you know, it's just me telling you what I see. I go to a lot of events. You know that, red carpets and things. Where You're PR always out jump somewhere. in without knowing a clue about what they're doing. And, I, I, you know, you, do, you walk away getting pit. You know, you're, they tick off the press. They tick off the stars. They tick off everybody. And then they call you next week saying, hey, let's do it again with a whole new red carpet. And you're like, And why would you, you want to do that? <laughs> And we're always we're always happy to go to a Blaine Group event because they're always so well put together, and so we so appreciate what you do. And I wanted to share you with the world, and um, you know, because I think you're an exceptional company, and uh, there's a lot of people out there. There's probably more people out there that need your types of you know boutique 
types of services that you give than need the large PR firm or even the single person out there that charges, you know, on the cheap but delivers nothing. Um, I would point people towards you first, so. Well, I very much appreciate your support. I'm grateful for that, JW, and thank you for your time this morning in the interview. Well, thank you for showing up because uh, this is, uh, you know, Fridays is that Mondays and Fridays are a rough day for you guys. And the ones in between, too. Yes, I know you're heading into a bunch of projects. I know because I've got you calendared. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we have you calendared a whole lot. <laughs> This is J.W. Nigerian with On Purpose Magazine. I'm speaking today to Devin Blaine from the Blaine Group uh, in Beverly Hills. Uh, Devin, how can people get a hold of you um, to get uh, more information or to meet you or to get some stuff done? Well, our phone number is 310-360-1499, and my email is Devin, that's D-E-V as in Victor, O-N, at Blaine, B-L-A-I-N-E, Group, Inc. Inc. Com. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Devin. And I'll be seeing you soon at an, at, a, at an event soon, I'm sure. You're all over L.A. I will see you very soon. Thanks again, J.W. All right. Everybody have a great day and an even better tomorrow. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to our Meta Media Group production of On Purpose Magazine. You can find On Purpose Magazine at onpurposemagazine.com. On Purpose Magazine and JW On Purpose is the property and is a trademark of Meta Media Group, and this audio is copyright 2012, and all rights are reserved.